Pray with me if you would once again. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift that you've given us and just being able to appreciate things and to be able to to have minds that can grasp truth. And not only that, God, you've made us emotional beings and we can, we can enjoy and we can love things. We can love music and even to be used to glorify you and draw attention to the, the great victory that we have in Christ, even thinking about that song. Uh, what a great, great gift you've given us. And, and we rejoice in it. We're thankful for it. May we seek every opportunity we can possibly find to see your good hand these great gifts you've given to us. Now, Lord, as we open your word, as we study it together, may it be a profitable time, may it be a transforming time, that we would think differently so that we would act differently, so ultimately you would receive glory in a way that you didn't in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction this morning, I want to begin by asking you three simple questions, questions about worship. Number one, do you worship? Do you worship? Number two, how important is worship? How important is worship? And number three, what is worship? First one's easy. Do you worship? Well, 99% of you who are here this morning would say yes. Most people in our country would say yes. In fact, most people in our country would say, we not only worship, we worship the Christian God. And many, many, many people around the world would say the same thing. So the first one is really easy. But that sort of draws you into the next question. How important is worship? Again, 99% of us in this room, uh, no doubt, would say, well, it's, it's really important. Worship is important. And again, in the city or in this nation and even beyond, many, many people would say, worship is not only something I engage in, but it is also, number two, very important. So far, so good. Real easy, simple questions. Number three is really where things get interesting. What is worship? Just real simply, what is worship? You see, I've done my best to draw you in so I can expose perhaps a weakness that we have. We say we worship, we say it's important, and we don't know what it is. We say we worship, we say it's important, it's a multi million dollar industry called worship. I'd like to talk about that in a different sermon. What is it? And then we give an answer, and our answer is at worst not right. Not quite as bad, but it's it's very short sighted. Or perhaps it's right. But because so many of us are committed to this, because we all know it's important, the Bible would say that it's important, and so many of us don't know what it is, or we know what it is in part, I'm motivated as a pastor. I'm motivated as a pastor to say, let's try to answer the last question. Let's try to answer the last question with Bibles open so that we can understand this important thing called worship that God really does think is important. And that's what caused us a couple of weeks ago, what led me to say, let's do this series, a mini-series, if you will, on worship. The outline is an outline of ten or so, I want to leave a little wiggle room, ten or so conclusions about Christian worship. Ten or so conclusions about Christian worship is what we'll continue looking at this morning. Two weeks ago we started this, I'll review in case you weren't here, and then we'll continue doing some new ground this morning. I hope by the time we're done this morning we'll have five of them under our belts 
And by the way, next week is when it really gets controversial. So you want to come back next week. That was my little marketing pitch. You can tell I'm not a very good marketer. But anyway, next week is when we start talking about things like music. Um, And I don't know if Martin Luther was correct or not, but he said that when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. Um, and I didn't say that, but he, Martin Luther was a very crass man. You should read some of his writings. On second thought, maybe you shouldn't. But anyway, that's just the, the clean stuff. Anyway, all of that to say, let's review the first two conclusions that we've already drawn from the Bible about worship so we can begin adding to the building blocks, building uh, up a correct understanding of what worship is because we say we do it and we say it's important. We definitely need to know what it is. Number one, Christian worship is, they'll all start that way, directed toward God alone. Christian worship is directed toward God alone. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. They're essentially saying the same exact thing. Worship is only for God. Going back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And he elaborates on that a little bit. Then Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's all built upon, as we saw, monotheism. There's only one God. If there's only one God and He's really God, He's above us, well, then there's only one God who is to be worshipped. There's only one entity who is to be worshipped. God is not my peer. God is not my servant. God is above me. He's above you. And by the very nature of who He is, God... He needs to be worshipped. Now, this is easy enough in a formal sense because we would all agree with that if we say we're Christians. We say, absolutely, we shouldn't worship things, we shouldn't worship stuff, we shouldn't worship other gods. But it's a whole other issue to say, okay, what does that look like in my life? I have not gotten out chisel and hammer lately in a physical sense and carved out a little statue to bow down and say prayers to. But that doesn't guarantee that I don't worship other things, other people, other gods. That's not really the focus this morning, but you you begin to see there's application involved here because if we're not really worshiping the one true God the way we're supposed to worship Him and we're getting our affections to other things or other people, it may very well be that we're not worshiping God and God alone and giving to Him what is only for Him. What's the word for worshiping other things or other people? It's idolatry. You might as well have the word in your mind because when you read the Bible, it's all over the place. You, 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 next time, if you're going to read through the Bible in a year or something, your New, New Year's resolution or whatever it is, or maybe you're already doing it now, however you choose to do your devotions, it's, it's a good question to at least have in the back of your mind, if not in the front of your mind. Asking yourself the question, is there anything being revealed here about how God feels about idolatry? He talks about it a lot. As one person said, you want to know what really hacks God off? It's idolatry. Serious, serious business. As that same person said, idolatry is something we're very much engaged in because we are committed to the de-godding of God. We treat Him like a peer. We treat Him like an underling. Read your Bible and find it, and you'll find it all over the place. We want to make sure that we reserve our, our affections. We want to make sure that we reserve our devotion and commitment first and foremost to God and God alone. And even as we enjoy good gifts from God, our relationships, our job, and all of these other things, the food that we receive, and our homes, and all these other things, our careers, our education, we've got to see God's hand of goodness in them. Otherwise, they end up becoming the idol's. 
So we've got to see that, our health, whatever it may be. The New Testament passage we looked at last time was Revelation 22, 9, where John bows down to worship the angel, and the angel knows enough to say, don't do that, worship God. It's only for God, and we won't look at the details of that like we did last time. Well, we can go ahead and move on, pushing things ahead a bit. By way of review, Christian worship is in response to God. It is in response to God. It's in response to who He is, number one. It's in response to what He has done, number two. And we looked at Psalm 99, verse 5. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at His footstool. Then He tells us why. Why would we exalt the Lord? Why would we worship at His footstool, bowing down to Him, seeing Him as above us? He says at the very end of Psalm 99, verse 5, Holy is He. Ah, We're to worship God because of who He is. That He's holy. He's above us. He's transcendent. He is not a peer. He is exalted. This is why, and I talked about it last time just by way of review again, this is why it's so important for us to learn theology. This is why it's so important for us to read through our Bible saying, who is God? Because knowing who God is is the very kindling, if you will, that fires and fuels our worship. It is is absolutely ludicrous and crazy and an insult to God and unbiblical and any other thing you could think of that sounds bad to say we're going to worship God, but we're not going to talk about theology. Read Psalm 99.5 is just one sample, one example that would say that's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. It assumes that you know who God is. Furthermore, still talking about the second conclusion, Christian worship is in response to God, not only His character, but also His works. And I just chose Ephesians 1 last week because it's just so impressive to me and I love it so. Here's Paul considering in his mind all the things that he'd done against this one true God, the idolater that he was, the blasphemer that he was, that he was dead spiritually in his trespasses and sins. And even in his deadness, he was uh, living against God. He's the enemy of God and he's contemplating all of these things. And then he, by the grace of God, light bulb goes off. But God... God spares him. God rescues him. And so that's why he leads the book in chapter 1 just praising God full throttle. Just going on and on and on and on worshiping God with his mouth because of what God has done. And again, men and women and boys and girls, that assumed, it assumes that Paul knows what God has done. This assumes that you know what God has done. This assumes that I know what God has done. And it takes us back to, this assumes we're knowing theology. We're learning theology. The study of God, who He is, and what He's done. And that's why we read our Bibles. Again, asking ourselves the question, what does this passage, whether it's Genesis 1-1 or Leviticus 1-1 or wherever it is, what does this teach me about who God is and what He's done? That is the very thing that fuels worship. It is critical that we're doing that. It is essential that we're doing that. We're we're, we're robbing God of glory and worship and we're certainly having weak worship at best if we're not doing that. So when people criticize and say, well, you know, you're really into the Bible and theology and lots of talk about God, but you know, when do you worship? I totally reject that. Worship is knowing who God is and what He's done and and, and responding to Him. 
Let's move on. A third conclusion we should draw from the scriptures would be Christian worship is spiritual. Christian worship is spiritual. This one might take the the most amount of time as far as developing and thinking through, but we're plodding on now to new ground. What I mean by that is it's more than merely physical. It's it's not tied to a location in in a limited sense. And in John chapter 4 is where we see this fleshed out. And so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 4. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Maybe we just gave you one. You can look. There's a table of contents there. And you can see that John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the good news of Jesus Christ according to John, his follower. What's happening is Jesus is engaging a woman who is a Samaritan woman. That becomes important because Jesus is a Jew. This woman is a Samaritan, thus the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, uh, what's important is they, they, they were warring religious factions, if you will. I hate to call the Jews factions. They were warring religious parties. And one of the issues was this issue over sacred space. Where do we go to worship? Should the temple be the temple in Jerusalem? Or should the temple be the temple at Mount Gerizim? The Samaritans said Mount Gerizim, die hard. The Jews, Jerusalem, die hard. So they are definitely at odds with one another. And what we'll see is Jesus shedding light on this whole issue that ultimately it's not going to matter which mountain you're talking about. It's going to have to do with something that is internal. And it's not limited to a space. Look with me, if you would, at verse 21. I realize we're rudely interrupting a conversation, but for the sake of time, we're just going to go ahead and do that. Verse 21 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. There's a day dawning, a day is coming. this, This will be a moot argument between the Samaritans and the Jews. It's not about that. This is just an interesting historical note. The Samaritans insisted Mount Gerizim was the highest mountain in the world. Footnote, even though Mount Ebal, just across the valley, was demonstrably higher. Religious convictions, right? This is how it's been. Don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. That was the mindset of the Samaritans. Even after their temple was destroyed, the Samaritans continued to perform their sacrifices and other rites on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, if you look there, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Now, we're going to skip the in truth part because that will be later. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Based upon what we know about the cultures, based upon what we know about their religious convictions, we know that the issue is, it's not going to be about where to worship anymore. We know the rest of the story, and Jesus said that time is coming, and now is. It's there. It's it's dawning. Why? Because he's going to go to the cross... He is going to fulfill all of those sacrificial requirements. We don't need the book of Leviticus anymore in that sense. We don't need the sacrificial system because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as has already been said of Him. And so, 
It's a moot point. You know, it's, not a, it's not a matter of having to fight back and forth. Which temple do we go, go to? Where do we go to make sacrifices? Jesus will make it clear. The Jews are right, by the way. It's Jerusalem. But a time is coming when this, this won't be a, a worthy argument anymore. It won't be tied to the physical temple. We're not going to take the time to, to have everyone turn there. But 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, there's a change that happens. We don't go to the physical temple anymore to do sacrifices. Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. It's done. It's complete. And now there's a shift. And now all of a sudden we're called a temple. There's a distinction. Now, I don't want to muddy the waters. We could just move on. But I feel compelled to make a couple of statements regarding what this is not saying. So some of you can just check out if you want. But... Let's just make it clear on just a couple of observations about what this is not saying, maybe a few. This is not saying when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's no longer a need for corporate gatherings. There's no longer a place for corporate worship because after all, you know, it used to be tied to a location and now the Holy Spirit's in us and so I just live my Christian life independently of everyone else. You might come to that conclusion if you don't read your Bible. If you read one verse... But we see passages in the New Testament, like in the book of Hebrews, which complements Leviticus, that would say, don't forsake the assembling together. Uh, we have spiritual gifts, and we need each other's spiritual gifts, and it's important that we, we work together so that the body of Christ is built up. I think most of us know that, but let's just, I don't want to take anything for granted, so I mention it. Furthermore, this is not saying that in the Old Testament, believers could only worship at a certain location. I don't want to confuse you, but I do want to just... Walk down that path a little ways. Surely this is not saying that in the Old Testament you could only worship God when you were at a temple. Surely wasn't saying that. There's way too much in that Old Testament. While it was required to go to the temple and to make sacrifices, let's not conclude like biblical illiterates making everything too nice and too neat. That was the only time they worshipped. That, that wouldn't make sense in light of Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Old Testament. And I don't know of anyone on the planet who would say that has nothing to do with worship. Even though he, he says love. He's using that certainly as, a, as an act of worship. It's with all that you are. It would be all-encompassing in your life. That's why Deuteronomy 6, 6 says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The point is, this is your whole life. Teach your children that your whole life is theocentric. Your whole life is God-centered. It's all about Him. In that sense, there's a lot of continuity. There's a lot of similarity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we, we, we can't, we dare not miss that. And in, in, in the name of being nice and neat, well, the Old Testament, it was physical only. The New Testament, it's spiritual only. We're seeing Jesus in John chapter 4 making it clear there is a distinction. There is some continuity based upon what Christ has done. We don't need the physical temple anymore. You are a temple of the Spirit. There's a distinction. There's something, no doubt we'd say it's better because it's based upon the finished work of Christ. Maybe I'm just cautioning you to, to be careful with how you're interpreting the Bible and, and the conclusions you're drawing. Just one more thing, furthermore, regarding this. 
in the Old Testament, it couldn't have been merely physical because God doesn't change. You say, where are you going? We'll look at the verse in a second again. God is spirit. Was he in the Old Testament? Yeah. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit. See that right there? John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In the Old Testament, they worshiped God absolutely as a spiritual endeavor and it wasn't merely physical. So I'm not trying to contradict Jesus. I'm just trying to say, hey, God didn't change. If you say, well, that's because God was physical in the Old Testament and he became spiritual in the New Testament, you just became a heretic because God changed. He doesn't change. So I realize we're off the beaten path, but it's just worth thinking this through. What we do certainly have is temple essential to a complete life of worship in the Old Testament. Christ fulfills all the sacrificial system. And so now we move beyond the temple, although they still had spiritual involvement. Now we move beyond the physical locale and it's all spiritual with some physical dynamics, even in life in the light of the, the church. So again, if that's confusing, I'm sorry. You can just skip the last five minutes. Just trying to grow in our thinking and thinking through these things biblically. And and that sometimes means we don't make things so nice and so neat. Does that make sense? You had to worship God in spirit in the Old Testament or you couldn't worship him based upon what it says in verse 24. But there was this physical grounding temple. And that's gone now. So it's in spirit. It's only spiritual with some physical ramifications, as we will see. Worship has to be spiritual. It's not all about, come to Omaha Bible Temple. We would never, ever, if God lets us plant 25 churches in the next 25 years, which would be wonderful, we'll never call it Omaha or whatever XYZ Bible Temple. There is no more temple. We are temples. There's a distinction. It's different. It has to be a spiritual dynamic. And we're going to get more into this in a little while on point number five, but we need to do point number four first. But that, this is going to set that framework for us needing to make sure that it's an internal thing. It's more than merely going somewhere. Okay, let's move on. Number four, Christian worship is biblical. Biblical. I'm using a synonym for truthful or in truth. That's what Jesus says. Let's see this. In verse 22, you'll look again and see, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. I have to stop for a second. You, I inserted Samaritans because I know he's talking to the Samaritan woman. You Samaritans, worship what you don't know. That is a very, very tactful way of Jesus saying, what? You Samaritans are ignorant about worship. Which is a very, very tactful way of saying, you Samaritans are idolaters. He's flat out saying that. He's absolutely saying, you are wrong, you Samaritans. Because look what he goes on to say, verse 22. We, Jews, worship what we know. We're not idolaters. For salvation is from the Jews. The Jews are right. That's the point that he's making. They say, well, what was going on? What's the, what's the issue? Well, we know that there was a battle over turf, but there was also this battle over authority. What is truth? Samaritans say, first five books of the Old Testament, Pentateuch, that's our authority. Period. 
The Jews say, oh no, we've got the prophets and we have everything else that goes beyond. And Jesus says, Samaritans are wrong, Jews are right, and that's no doubt what he means when he says worship in truth. It's got to be biblical. It has to be accurate according to Scripture or, or, or it's not legitimate, really. Looking at verse 22 again, you can appreciate it, I hope. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews are right, the Samaritans are wrong. Notice Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I can appreciate the fact that you Samaritans are really devoted people and you talk about God, you claim to be monotheistic. So, no doubt, since you're sincere, surely God accepts you. That sounds like what we would say today. Jesus does not speak in those terms. He doesn't even get close. The Samaritans believe part of the Bible. They believe some things true about God. And Jesus takes the gloves off and makes the point, because you only accept part of the truth, you end up with error. He's saying you're wrong. You, You worship in ignorance. This is about as politically incorrect as you could be. And I say there's something there in principle for us to take home. He calls their worship wrong because it's not biblical. Thoroughly biblical. So then he says again in verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And by the way, there's going to be more revelation based upon what Christ is about to do. (sighs) Principle to take home. True worship must be biblically informed. True worship must be biblical. Worship must be biblical for it to be authentic, however you want to say it. To the point where Jesus talks to a nice lady. And says, the Samaritans are wrong. You guys are wrong. All right, there's a precedent from Jesus. J. Oswald Sanders makes a good conclusion regarding this when he says, We slander God by our eagerness to serve God without knowing Him. We slander God by our eagerness to serve God for our effect, worship, without knowing Him. Because of our ignorance, we may be zealous but it turns out to be slanderous. In other words, it's idolatrous. I say this is something really good for us to talk about. This is something really good for us to dwell on. I know it's work. I know we have to roll up our sleeves and say, okay, who are the Samaritans? and What do they believe? And what is Jesus saying? What's going on here? I think it's really worth it because it ends up being so, quote-unquote, relevant to us that you can have part of the truth, but if you reject the rest of the truth about God, it means disqualified worship to the point where you could die for what you believe like the Samaritans would have. Give yourself to what you believe as the Samaritans would have. Be committed to monotheism as the Samaritans were and still have Jesus Christ say, you worship in ignorance. doesn't count. It makes me swallow hard. It just makes me, makes me motivated to say, we, we've got to be reading our Bible saying, what does this say about God? What does this say about who God is? What does this say about who I am? What does this say about what God has done? 
so that I can really know who He is and I can worship in truth. Lest it not really be worship, it just be religion, ceremony. I don't want that to happen. Again, when someone says, well, what we're going to do for this particular event is we're going to set aside our theology and we're just going to worship. That doesn't even make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense at all because the very thing that fuels our worship is theology and we can't really have real worship unless it's theologically based. If God was ever going to think that was a good idea, it would have been with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You know, I know you've got these problems and all these issues and we've been arguing back and forth, but theology really isn't important. Isn't it great to know that we just both worship the same God? If that was ever going to happen, no doubt it would have happened there. And Jesus defies social graces. I think he is gracious. And he says, you and the tribe you've come from are deathly wrong. We need to think rightly about God or it's not really worship. And I don't know about you. I think I'm giving a lot of my life to worshiping God. I mean, the investment is big. I mean, let's just be real crass about it. Is there anything else we could be doing right now? Yeah. Or when you're serving in your area of ministry? Yeah. Not to mention your personal life and all the things you do that are, that, are, that are seemingly aimed at God and glorifying Him. I'm here to tell you in light of John chapter 4, there's a real possibility you could be as sincere as possible and have it all be zip. That really motivates me, again, to roll my sleeves up and try to understand and say, what does the Bible say that is true about God? What is, it, what is, what is true about God that I learned from the Bible so I can worship God and have it really count for something. Lest this be one big, huge exercise in us wasting our time. I don't want that. But we don't get this. I'm very convinced we don't get it. I'm convinced we don't get it when we just talk. When we hear people talking, when we talk. When I hear someone say, you know... Yeah, we were at this church, or we visited this church on vacation, or whatever, and we went, and you know, the preaching wasn't good, and you know, the, the theology wasn't good, man-centered, whatever, but you know, the worship was really good. I do one of those Scooby-Doo things in my head. Hmm? <laughs> Can't believe I just did that, but I did it first hour, and I didn't want you guys to be shortchanged. But my wife wasn't here first hour, so it was a little easier. Now I have to live with that. That's about the time when you say, well, I went somewhere and they have bad theology in in essence, but they have good worship. That's when I say to you, oh, that's interesting. You can translate that. I think you're biblically illiterate. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Can't believe I said that. That's just a little taste of what we're going to talk about in the days ahead when we talk about musical worship. Folks, we've got to get this right. We've got to think biblically about worship. We have to. It's vital. It's essential. Otherwise, God isn't getting the glory and isn't getting the worship that He so rightfully deserves. 
Apart from the truth, I can't worship God. Can't do it. Well, I've just done enough to throw sand in your face, hoping you'll come back next week so I can explain what I mean by these things. The point being, Jesus is strong enough. I don't need to try to be stronger. For it really to be worshipped, truly to be worshipped, it has to be biblical, or it's not. Let's move on to number five, and we'll wrap up on number five. Christian worship is more than ritual. Christian worship is more than ritual. In other words, it is more than going through the motions. It is more than you showing up here on Sunday. It is more than you saying, now I lay me down to sleep, blah, 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 blah. Uh, It's more than you giving money. It's more than you serving and going through the motions. It's more than you, you fill in the blank, singing. All of those things that I just mentioned, from prayer to giving to singing to showing up, are all biblical things, right? Those are all biblical mandates. But Christian worship is more than us going through those motions. This ties back into what we were just seeing a little while ago. It's spiritual. It's on the inside. It can't only be going through the motions. There are emotions we must go through, but it can't only be that. And the passage I would like you to look at is Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1, like nowhere else in my mind, we, we see this very clear. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Psalms in the very middle of your Bible. And then to the right, you see Proverbs, some small books, and then Isaiah. You get to Jeremiah, you just need to back up. Ezekiel, you just need to back up. Isaiah chapter 1 is a great Old Testament passage that has it clear that even though God wants us to go through certain motions, if we're only going through those motions, the worship doesn't count. It's an offense. And I realize I'm using the Old Testament passage for this, but the New Testament would, in essence, teach the same thing, and I will reference one of those passages. You have your seatbelts on? Oh... This is pretty intense. Look at Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Question. Is he talking to Sodom and Gomorrah? No. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. And they were biblically literate. They're going to know. I know what Genesis says about Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's, it's high-handed, disgusting, gross. In fact, we as the people of Israel, we talk about those bad people, you know, in history. He's calling them by the same name to make a point about their brazen sinfulness. Verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, God says? says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath. The calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. And your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. What's the problem? Is the problem that God didn't want 
assembly? Is the problem that God didn't want prayer? Is the problem that God didn't want sacrifice? The very things that they are doing. No. We could take the time to look up text after text to see these are the very things God was requiring. So then why does God say, I don't want any of it. I I hate it. Hating the very things He commands? How could this be? There's only one answer to that question. And you see in verse 15, at the end, your hands are covered with blood. There's our clue. They're going through the motions. We would say, to borrow it from the Old Testament, they're doing church and churchianity and living in sin. It's just become a ritual. It's just become us coming to church today because we came to church last week and we know it's the right thing to do. It's us serving in the local body because we did that last week and we know it's the right thing to do. It's us giving because we did last week and we know it's the right thing to do and you fill in the blank. Whatever it is we're called to do, we can legitimately see it here. It's living the double life. I'm not worshiping God in spirit. It's not genuine from the inside. It's just all ritual. Knowing when to stand up, knowing when to sit down, knowing what to say at the right time. And just as they understood the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah and were busy always looking down their posh noses at Sodom and Gomorrah, that's kind of how we act with Israel, isn't it? Man, just read your Old Testament. Those guys, I think they'd never learn. Well, by saying that and following out that logic, you'd think we'd never learn. That's us. Apart from the grace of God. If for no other reason, I think it's good to do a series on worship now and then so that we can have our, our, our leash pulled back a little bit and be shaken a little bit to say and say, hey... This is way too easy for us as a church, way too easy for me as an individual, way too easy for me as a pastor to just grind it and have it not really be from the inside. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Sometimes it even goes so far as we even boost up our public activity to somehow in our minds think that by boosting up our public activity, it's going to make up for our private inactivity. I liked what one person had to say about this one. They wrote, worship is not a matter of being at the right place at the right time with the right words, the right demeanor, the right clothes, the right formalities, the right music, and the right mood. Worship is not an external activity for which an environment must be created. It takes place on the inside. And I would add a footnote to that and say, and it manifests itself absolutely on the outside. 
perhaps, we'll wrap things up, perhaps some of us might be tempted to conclude that we're above this and we're especially above it as a church because, you know, we don't really have a lot of traditions. You know, we, we really don't have a liturgy. And I would say, you know what? I think you're fooling yourself and we're fooling ourselves. If we think we don't have traditions and we think we don't have a liturgy, how many songs do you think we're going to sing next Sunday morning to start the service? And probably three or four, good guess. I might be willing to make a bet. You think maybe I'll come up and do scripture reading? Yeah, probably will. Think it'll be from the Psalms? Yeah. In fact, it'll be Psalm 149. We're reading through the Psalms. I think at the end of the service, we'll have a couple people volunteer and they'll come up front. Yeah, we'll have one of our ministry leaders come up and close in prayer. And you know what? Eric Raymond at the beginning of the service will welcome everyone. He'll probably draw attention to one announcement in the bulletin. We have liturgy. There was a time in my life when I thought because I was leaving the dead church I came from and it was dead. And it was very liturgical, stand up, sit down, rah, rah, rah. I mean, I had it all figured out. I even know when the pastor would say at the end, as an ordained minister in the church of Jesus Christ, I now declare to you the entire forgiveness of your sins in the name of the Father. Yeah, I had all that in a dead Lutheran church. And then somehow I think, well, now that I'm away from that, we're further protected because we don't have, it's not liturgical. Well, I'm glad I'm not there anymore, but we have liturgy too. We absolutely do. We can get used to going through all the same motions, disconnected, if you will, unplugged from the Spirit of God, having it be genuine. And we are a pitiful bunch. So let me encourage you to go home and worship God in spirit and in truth to the glory of God based upon what He says about Himself and what He's done You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a recipe for a transformed life. That sounds like a recipe for us then as a church having great corporate worship. The key to us having great corporate worship is us having great individual worship. That's what we want. We just want to be worshiping God all of the time. And the culmination is not... Anything less than we come together having been plugged in, if you will, in spirit and in truth, not just going through the motions and all of a sudden we come together for the preaching and hearing of God's Word and for corporate prayer and for singing, musical worship, for the fellowship, fellowship worship, let's call it, as we'll lead into next week. It's just magnificent. But we fall in the rut of... yeah. We're going to come together somehow. Hopefully that will help me pay my dues. Well, like I said, next week it will be the controversial stuff and we'll start getting into other issues. And probably the week after that will even be more controversial. So, boy, you guys are committed. Cancel your vacations. Um, <laughs> we thank God for iTunes uh, and those kinds of things for us. Let's pray and be done this morning. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, the brief interaction we've had even with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. There's certainly more for us to be lo- more for us to learn from that account. 
But may we walk away with a, a deep conviction that our worship really does need to be based upon your revelation of yourself and not anything less. And that it really does need to come from a genuine internal transformation that comes from your Holy Spirit. For the glory of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.